Well, today um, we are going to be continuing in our series in Genesis, and we're going to begin uh, the first of two weeks on the fall. This week we'll consider the fall itself, uh, and next week we'll consider um, the judgment and exile. Uh, and the creation narrative is a fascinating one of God's good creation, humanity at the center of that creation, um, in covenant relationship with him. Uh, we considered God creating a place uh, for, for humanity to dwell, giving them something to do, calling them into covenant partnership with them, and then creating family. It's not good that man be alone. All of this good, God sees it, it's all very good. Um, and now something not good comes into the story. Uh, and it's a profound one. And so I want to just begin um, with, uh, with a passage from Revelation. Because in the Genesis account, um, we are introduced to a new character, the serpent. Uh, and the serpent... Uh, is obviously something more than just a created animal. Uh, and was, as the scripture develops, we see that the serpent uh, has connection to these two domains that, that we have in the beginning of Genesis, which is the spiritual place, spiritual, the heavens and the earth, the material world and the spiritual world. Um, and the, serp the serpent seems to be a connection to both. Satan, uh, who is the great enemy, the accuser, the deceiver uh, of God, uh, the enemy of God and of God's people, um, is introduced into the story. But he's not given that name. We just see hints of it uh, when the curse comes, uh, when the woman is told that, that through her seed, the serpent's head will be crushed. Uh, but all I can tell you about the serpent in the garden story is that we don't know how he got there and we don't know why he's there. Um, he just is. And I think that this is something, this gives us a little bit of an insight into the scriptures themselves. The scriptures, throughout the scriptures, throughout the narrative arc of the scriptures, there are these moments where the unseen world in uh, the battle that is going on within it, that there is a spiritual domain and that that spiritual domain seems to be in a battle around God's redemptive purposes, um, comes into focus just for a, moment, for a moment and then kind of fades again into the background. But this is what I want us to understand is that scripture is abundantly clear. Ephesians chapter five says that our battle is what? Not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, and rulers of this dark age. Uh, and I think that we have to understand that there is a real spiritual war. Um, there is a real spiritual battle behind the, all of the, um, the challenges that we face in existence as human beings in a fallen world, uh, that there, is, there are spiritual powers at play in how we function in our material world. Uh, and there is a thing as pure evil. And evil shows up in Genesis chapter 3. In Revelation, um, we're given an insight into the Genesis narrative. Uh, you know, Old Testament scholars want to give us, um, uh, to define things from the text itself and not read uh, other texts into the text. But as 
readers of scripture, uh, all of scripture is God breathed and we interpret everything from this side of Calvary. Uh, in other words, we interpret everything through the lens of Christ and through the cross. Uh, and so we have a full picture uh, that, that, is, that is not available to uh, the author of Genesis. And so I wanna just read this passage from Revelation chapter 12, verses nine and 10. It says, and the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So there's a real enemy. <laughs> And this enemy shows up in the third chapter of Genesis. And I want us to consider this profound passage uh, and the introduction of sin into the human race. In Genesis chapter three, verses one through three, we're told this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, you may eat from the tree in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now I wanna um, just begin with, uh, with focusing in on what is the theme of the fall. Uh, and the theme of the fall is not necessarily um, wicked desires in, in, in our first parents, but foolish desires. It's all around the pursuit of knowledge. Um, it's the pursuit of wisdom or knowledge. It's the Faustian deal. And that is that desire to have, to, um, to hold in your hand secret knowledge. Have you guys ever read Faust? Uh, it's a famous, uh, famous German uh, play uh, that speaks of this, this man who basically makes a deal with the devil to, um, to increase his, his secret knowledge, but it, it ultimately undoes his life. Uh, that it's knowledge th that leads in the wrong direction. It leads toward death and destruction and ultimately isolation. And that, that Faustian concept is one that plays out. It's, it's a central theme. It's one of these central narrative themes in, in literature and in film, in our entertainment, because we all understand it. Because um, there is a longing for us to surpass where we currently are. That is not a problem in and of itself. The issue is how we go about surpassing where we currently are. It's the idea that Satan plants in the, in the mind of this woman that God is somehow withholding, that he is withholding true satisfaction from her. Now, one thing that is important for us to note is it says that the serpent was more crafty. And we can, we can ask questions around the, the concept of what is the serpent? Is it a snake as we think of it? Uh, and, and all I would say is that serpent seems to be connected to something beyond 
the 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 animals that we see in the created in the creation story there are these strange moments where where in the creation narrative we're given insight into beasts that go beyond what we know in the animal kingdom uh, leviathan uh, in the sea that kind of speak to this weird merging of both the spiritual and physical domain and it, notice that it says that the serpent was more cunning than any of the wild beasts um, so it's kind of pointing to this other category some some you know have translated to dragon revelation uses both language of dragon and serpent but the thing that i want you to note is not what is the serpent but what does it say about the serpent and it uses the word in the english um, the translation is crafty but that word is generally used positively in scripture um, it's used in job and it's used again in proverbs and it's a word that literally speaks of just wisdom um, so the theme is wisdom. What the woman sees in the serpent is that the serpent seems to carry within him wisdom, wisdom that is somehow desirable. That he becomes an emblem of seeking after knowledge apart from God rather than from God. Now, I, I think that this is a, a, a fascinating thing because that word, um, the, the idea of, of this wisdom is that there is a there is a wisdom that is forbidden, and then there is the wisdom that comes from, from obedience to God. So the whole question is not, is it wrong to desire to know or to understand? The question is, is what do we do and how do we try to obtain that knowledge? And is God at the center of, of our decision-making? So the serpent begins with this fascinating question, did God really say? And this connects us to one of the key ideas around how Satan works in the world and in our lives. And it's with temptation. It always begins with temptation. We're told that he is a liar and that he has been a liar from the beginning. If some of you are sitting here and you're like, I don't know if I believe in the devil. Um, and I would just ask, well, do you believe in Jesus? And do you believe in because I, I find it interesting when Christians like they pick and choose what parts of the gospel they're comfortable with like the devil seems a little like you know kind of far-fetched and probably part of that is because we think of the devil in terms of how our entertainment has has shaped our vision of what he is you know and and i think that we need to remember that what we're told is that satan appears as an angel of light that he's quite beautiful quite alluring um, and incredibly deceptive. And I think if you already believe that Jesus is the savior of the world and he died for the sins of the world, you've already crossed over into the zone of, of absolute stupidity according to the average secular mind. So you know what, you're not helping yourself by saying, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in the devil. And the fact is, is actually more people in our society believe in demons <laughs> um, and evil than they do in God. People actually have less of an issue with the concept of personified evil. Um, and so I, so I don't think that Satan is a metaphor for collective evil as some theologians uh, try to define. I don't think that the, that the garden narrative, um, though it may be using metaphorical language or poetic language, I do believe it's describing real events. And I think the thing that we need to understand about the serpent is not what exactly is the serpent? What we need to recognize is there is a spiritual force behind this character that is trying to lead 
our first parents away from trusting God. That at its core is what is most important. Now, I also want to be very careful when we talk about the devil and demons. There are, there are, um, there are, I think, movements within the church that can become overly um, focused upon spiritual warfare. Uh, I've definitely, I once joked that there was, uh, I, I read a book by a famous charismatic pastor from the 70s. And by the end of the book, I was like, my goodness, this man thinks there's a demon under every rock. Uh, and uh, and just like everything was just like, well, it's a demon. I said, that's a demon, for sure a demon. And I, and I was like, man, I don't think there's a demon under every rock. And then I moved to Portland. And, <laughs> and I was like, and I will say this, that my, my view of spiritual warfare uh, became much more focused when I started Door of Hope. And having gone through unbelievable spiritual attack um, through the years of leading Door of Hope and having seen real deliverance, I think that it's a real deal. But here's the thing. We have this picture, like we think of The Exorcist. And I'm not going to lie. I really like that movie a lot. Um, I like any movie that takes God and the devil seriously, honestly. I would rather you watch The Exorcist, as, as Zion said, than a, a Disney film. Uh, because I think we need to recognize that there is real evil, and I'm not telling you to go home and watch that today, but it is Halloween. Eh, maybe, maybe tonight. That's what we're going to show tonight for this service, because I don't feel good, The Exorcist. One, two, and three. <laughs> I think there's a fourth one now with like twin demons, um, girls. Uh, but we're not going to watch that. Uh, here's, here's the point, is that we, we think of in terms of the sensational and demonic possession is a real thing. But that is not the primary means by which Satan attacks. Satan's attack is far more subtle. Those are red herrings. Uh, Satan's attacks come in our lives every day in ways that we're, <laughs> that we're not even aware of. Um, but it's, those, it's the voice that constantly poses that question, did God really say? It's the ways that we're tempted. Now, here's the thing, too. I want to be really clear. There is this player that guides our first parents toward rebellion, but ultimately they are responsible for their rebellion. And the same goes for us. We can't say Satan made me do it. He didn't make you do anything. But he may whisper lies. The question is, is have you attuned your heart and your mind to the voice of Jesus in such a way that you know the voice of the enemy and know that this is not a voice you should mess around with. Um, and I think that we, we struggle with this because the way that Satan's primary methodology is, it's always been the same. He's not, he, he isn't in the business of creating new, new tactics. He, he's used the same tactics from the beginning of time because they're so effective. And that is primarily temptation, accusation. It's the right and left punch. And the temptation is, it's not that big of a deal. Just do it. It's not, li you're, listen, you're saved by grace. God will forgive you. God will forgive you. And then you're like, I'm looking at something I shouldn't be looking at. I'm doing something I ought not to be doing. And, but, and the temptation is that it, it, Satan's incredible power and when I say Satan, I'm talking about the kingdom of darkness. I don't think that you probably personally are interacting with 
Satan, the king of the kingdom of darkness or the rule of this world, but it says there's a dominion of darkness um, and, and demons, uh, demons are beyond number, I think, uh, than what can be numbered. But the temptation is, is this, is, is, it's not that big of a deal. It's the downplaying of God's, God's call upon our lives that belief should lead to obedience. And then you're like, it's not that big of a deal. So you give in to the temptation. And then, and then you get the knockout punch. And that's accusation. And all of a sudden it's, God will never forgive you for that. How could you do that? And what is the outcome of sin? Shame. That sense of nakedness. Exposure and the desire to hide. And in the narrative that we see in this ancient text is the same narrative being played out in most of our lives, most days of the week, which is why the gospel is such good news. Because without Jesus, we would be lost. Now, and I want to say this clear. Sin is such a problem in human existence now that if Satan died today, you would continue to sin tomorrow. So I just want to be clear. So, we, so, so Satan doesn't become our scapegoat. Uh, he... He may be the tempter, but we are the ones that act. Um, and we are told that we will be judged for the things that we thought, for the things that we said, and the things that we did. Which I don't know about you. I'm like, if it was just, you will be judged for the things that you did, you know, I would just be most terrified of not doing the things that I ought to be doing. Uh, but I feel like that's actually, I could, I could almost bear that. Like we could, I could suck it up and try really hard to keep at least the externals clean. But Man, once Jesus adds the, you will be judged for what you think, I'm like, well, I'm screwed. That's just like, I'm going straight to hell. Like, how does one even escape that? Or what you said? I'm like a man with no filter. I have like, like Darcy literally stresses out every week she has to listen to me preach. She's like, oh my God, what is he going to say? What is he going to say? What is he going to say? Don't rabbit trail. No, don't go there, Josh White. I like, we're, our thoughts, our words our deeds are all under the judgment of God. This is why we need a Savior. In case anyone is thinking that they can save themselves, when you really ask the question, would you honestly share every thought you ever had with anyone without them thinking that you are an absolute monster? And you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Then I'm like, okay, well, I just exposed my evil then. <laughs> so... <laughs> Because my imaginings are quite, I terrify myself. Uh, I feel guilty when I wake up from dreams. This is why we need grace. And Satan here comes to the sinless, one who does not know rebellion yet. Um, and the temptation is tempting them to distrust God's good provision for them. I, I think this is a, a powerful um, picture because if we were to actually take the verse that we ended with last week and they were naked and not ashamed, uh, that there is, there's a sense of, of their focus is not on their differences uh, and there's no embarrassment around their differences because they are one with God and with each other. Um, and what we'll see is that shame is the natural outcome of the fragmentation of relationship. So here you have the serpent sowing seeds of doubt. But what I find interesting 
in the narrative is we already see a change in order. You have the creation of man, and then God gives the man the command to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for surely on the day that you eat of it, um, you will die. Death will enter into the story. The man has relayed that to the woman, who is his easer, his helper, the one who is not taken out of man's back, um, but is the one who actually, alongside man, actually together they fulfill the image of God together as they enter into covenant partnership with God. But that doesn't mean that there isn't distinctions of roles within the covenant. It doesn't mean that men are not women and women are not men, and we have, we have differences. And there is a failure, I think, here on the part of, because we're told that the man is there, sitting in the shadows, essentially, watching this interaction take place with no intervention, no protection. Uh, and I'm not saying that the woman needed the man because she's gonna, of course, make a dumb decision. No, they both need each other to not make dumb decisions. <laughs> and so the issue out of the gate is that their togetherness is already seemingly compromised on some level. They're not functioning in covenant partnership here. There is, a, there is now the separation of the man and woman. The woman is, is being tempted by the serpent and the man is not alongside her together actually entering into the battle with this creature that is clearly trying to get them to distrust God. And I think this is one of the powerful um, storylines that we need to hold to tenaciously um, as modern people, that we cannot live the Christian life alone. We cannot fight the enemy as crafty and as ancient and as devouring as Satan on our, in our own strength. In fact, Jesus teaches us to pray that we, we're not called to go out and look for demons or devils. The thing we're called to pray is, Lord, keep us from the evil one. <laughs> Protect us from one that we cannot withstand. Um, we need to be close to you and we need one another to maintain a closeness to him. Uh, and this is, this is, I think, a failure um, within the covenant between man and woman here. Um, there's something already going on uh, that is problematic. Now, what does the woman say? Here's the interesting thing. Satan poses the question, the temptation that he is creating is the temptation for something that they don't know, but think they ought to be able to know. The temptation is, is this tree could actually give to you something that God is withholding from you. There's the temptation. Now, the woman's response, Satan actually hasn't accused God of anything. He just is raising a question. You know, one of my great issues with, um, with the rise of the emergent church and postmodern Christianity is, I don't know if you guys know, if you don't know what the emergent church is, is because it was kind of a flash in the pan, but we're still feeling its ramifications, which was an attempt in the early 2000s to um, reframe Christianity in a way that would speak um, to the new millennium. How do we speak to postmodernity? How do we deal with the fact that truth has been 
um, has been so dismantled uh, that we don't even have basic foundations of truth. And the basic concept of, of the emergent church and why when people are like kind of touting it as the new revival, the new awakening, and it ended up being not an awakening, but in many ways a dismantling of orthodoxy is because it was built around the classic premise of postmodern thought, which is there are no answers to truth and everything should be posed in questions. And so I, I think about one of the key figures of the, of the emergent movement. He was on the cover of Christianity Today as the savior of American evangelicalism. And you know who that is? His name is Rob Bell. It's fascinating. I've always wanted to uh, write a little parable around the rise and fall of the two Mars Hills. Because there was Mars Hill, Seattle, which had its own rise and fall. And there was Mars Hill, Grand Rapids, Michigan. And they, they could not be more opposed. But both Mark Driscoll and Rob Bell came up as a part of that emergent church movement. Driscoll moving hard toward, in the right, the right decision to move toward orthodoxy. Um, kind of embracing reformed theology. And Bell continued to move toward liberal theology. Um, but the, but the, the, the basic premise of guys like Brian McLaren and, and Rob Bell, and I am naming names here, uh, uh, it was the idea that we shouldn't try to answer questions. We should approach church with a series of questions. So his best-selling book among Christians, which I read when I first got saved, and I, I was baffled by it. I, I could not figure out the appeal. Um, was called The Velvet Elvis. Um, and, the, and first of all, you can write your own book in between each sentence. That's how big the spaces were between the lines. And that right there, all Helvetica, that's what you use for titles, not for text. It, just the whole thing, the aesthetic view of it was all wrong on so many levels. It's deeply offensive. Um, but the biggest issue I had was the poking at, at traditional foundations. So one of the big premises he posed is, is the virgin birth necessary for the gospel, for you to believe in Jesus? So, and, and that seems like a re relatively innocuous question, but the, it actually matters a lot because what he's doing is he's starting to pull the threads and if you watch the trajectory as it began, that was the most like kind of like, whoa, what is he going at here? And, and you know, this whole thing is like, what we need is Jesus and it, and it ends on this note that feels right. But there's, there's been these questions that have been put out there without answers and it creates what? Doubt, it creates doubt. And then just follow the trajectory of his books. And I remember when I started Door of Hope, the final nail in the coffin of his life as a pastor at Mars Hill in Grand Rapids was love wins. And then that was the, is final judgment really a thing? And it was, the, it was a push for universalism. And that universe, and there was this continued move. And then after that, okay, universalist. I have guys that I love that are universalists. Uh, George McDonald is a universalist. I freaking love him. I'm, I'm still not totally convinced he was. I think he toyed with the idea but that's probably me being overly optimistic. Bart was probably a universalist. But these guys still were extremely grounded biblically. And they weren't universalists in the sense of like all paths lead to the same thing. They were like, no, Jesus is the only path, but his atonement is for everybody. Um, and so there was still very much like a Jesus only thing. And even McDonald believed in hell. He just viewed it more like purgatory. Like people are going to go there until they're burned clean. That was kind of McDonald's vision. So it's still actually quite terrifying, but 
definitely more optimistic than I think Scripture allows. Uh, but Bell's dismantling of that was, was definitely more open-ended, and then he left Mars Hill, and then what was the next book? Then the next book was re- Rethinking Sexuality. And then what was the next move? Then the next move was dismantling Christianity altogether, abandoning Jesus, all paths lead to God, we're all a part of God, and end of story. This is the natural tendency of the human heart when we allow Satan's temptations to cause us to question God's parameters. Because we don't like being told what to think or what to do. And so I think that this is, this is a problem, is that the question comes without an answer, but the question is meant to sow the seeds of doubt. I think nothing is needed more in the church today than a recommitment to the authority of God's Word. Now, I fully recognize the challenges that any time God's Word is preached, um, you are giving an interpretation of Scripture. And how do, you, how do you balance the authority of God's Word and the authority of a man interpreting God's Word? And that is a challenging thing. But I think that there are basic premises that we can hold to to come to conclusions. For me, and if you ever wonder how, how does Door of Hope protect itself from entering into the dominions of speculation, into the dominions of thus saith the Lord when it's really just thus saith the guy. Uh, How do you avoid that? And I think you have to hold tenaciously. This is why I refer to myself as a creedal Christian. Um, What I'm interested in is what has the church tenaciously held to, been willing to die for, for 2,000 years? And, And I'm not interested in trends that are 100 years old or 150 years old. I'm like, I look at church history and I'm like, what is the, what is the big C church, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, what are the areas that they hold all in common? What are the thing, the creedal? Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, these are guideposts for how we interpret scripture. Uh, and they, they lay out very important foundations. So I am not one who is comfortable saying, all we need is the Bible. I'm like, yes, the Bible is the Word of God. But when you read the Bible, you're still interpreting the Bible. And not only are you interpreting, you're also interpreting it, interpreting a translation of the Bible. Um, so where I think this is one of the reasons why Protestants are experiencing a massive exodus and why Catholics and Orthodox are experiencing a new kind of renaissance right now of evangelicals converting to Catholicism and Orthodoxy. You know, I have, a, I have an opinion on why that's happening. And I think it's because, I think that there, it's a pendulum swing that is so exhausted by the endless schisms within Protestantism um, and just a desire for something that's anchored in tradition. And I think in, a, in our culture, um, where tradition is being dismantled in every arena, politics, uh, in culture, like sexuality, all these areas that are being dismantled in every arena, there's a desire, like, it doesn't matter how liberal the Pope is, because the Pope is held by this massive machine called the Catholic Church, and he can be the most insane liberal. He probably isn't even going to move the needle as far as what they overall hold to, like, you're, you're not going to have a change in probably priesthood because, you have, because there's, there's an authority of the church over that. I think that there's an appeal in that. 
So what do we do? Is, do I think we should become Catholics or Orthodox? Well, no. I'm quite proud to be a Protestant. And I think that there are reasons why the Protestant Reformation happened that were absolutely essential in what I view as a return to patristic Christianity, to early church Christianity. And that is, was a return to the gospel that man cannot save himself. So I'm not interested in becoming Orthodox or Catholic. I love my Catholic brothers and my Orthodox brothers and sisters, but I am proudly a Protestant, but I think one of the ways that we can protect ourselves from the ways that Satan lies, which I think he does it incredibly well and maybe most powerfully in the church itself. The reason I'm going off on this tangent is not because I'm sick. It's because I actually believe Satan's greatest work is usually through the mouths of preachers um, and through the hungry ears of parishioners. His greatest work is not out there, friends. It's in here. It's in here. And the greatest work he does is to get you to doubt his goodness and his love for you and his desire to actually bring real satisfaction to your life. And the ways that he can do that is he can create doubt in the preacher. Have you ever heard a preacher preach the gospel and seem legitimately embarrassed and uncomfortable of what he's saying? It's the worst thing ever. If you ever listen to a preacher, the worst, the worst offense any preacher, I can forgive almost anything from the pulpit. Um, but the thing I cannot forgive is a, a timid communicator who seems to be embarrassed by the very thing that they're communicating. That's, that's like, if you don't believe it, then shut your mouth. Don't say anything. Um, but I also find pride in the pulpit a very difficult thing to swallow. And we're actually told it's an abomination to the Lord. And this is where Satan also can get people, is, that, is, is the whisper of the lie you are the one that knows the truth. The temptation uh, to believe that I somehow hold the keys to the kingdom. Many people have fallen into the trappings of believing their own press. This is why I, th I think one of the greatest ways that, um, Satan has infected the church is with the rise of celebrity preachers. And that's why we keep watching them bomb out left, right, and left, because they are in often in hiding, living duplicitous lives, but can't surrender their own power or prestige. And I think that that becomes more important to them than Jesus. I don't think any of them probably started that way. I think it's where they end up. And I think all of us can end up there if we aren't careful and if we're not living in vulnerability and community. And this is why I think we need community. And then we need the umbrella of orthodoxy or what I call creedal Christianity. And so if you're ever wondering, like, how did Josh come to the interpretations he come? I don't trust, like, the Lord told me this, and I've never read it before. Um, it's like, usually anytime I come up with something exciting that I feel like I haven't read that before, it's only a matter of time before I find that somebody else said it and said it way better than me. Um, so the, one of the, the classic truisms is that if it's new, it's not true. <laughs> it's just a good thing. Like, if you hear me say something that's so novel, you're like, I have never heard that ever. Like, you should be concerned. Um, uh, you know, it's like a, like sermons should be like, you know, they should have like hooks. And a hook, even if you don't, can't name what song it's being, you're, you're listening to that's being ripped off, um, there should be something familiar about it. <laughs> and I think that there should be something familiar about what the Spirit is trying to say to the whole community. Um, and we're called to test the spirits because Satan's subtlety 
in sowing the seeds of doubt into our lives is so real. So real. So, wisdom and the pursuit of wisdom apart from God is at the core of this. What does Eve say in response? And is her response accurate? I think it's important to note that the the conversation, there's problems on both sides. There's the questioning of, the subtle questioning of God. Is he withholding something good from you? But then there is the misrepresentation on Eve's side of what God actually said. This shows the danger of relaying communication. If the man indeed told Eve what God told him, we don't know, did Adam give her the extra, like, because what does she add? God didn't say, if you touch it, you'll die. She adds that. There is a, there is a, there is a misrepresentation. So the temptation, this is one of the, the, the great problems, is that temp- Satan feeds on our own ignorance. So you have no power to combat the deceptions that come into your lives. And you, you can say, well, I don't know if they're spiritual or not. I'm telling you, everything is spiritual, ultimately. And, and anytime you listen to the voices of this world, if the voice is not the one that points you to Jesus, we are told specifically in Scripture that all of the world is under the sway of the wicked one. So in case you're wondering, like, you know, it's, what are you looking for? Like, like well, I don't you know, re- listen to Anton LaVey or read the, the, you know, the, the satanic Bible. Good for you. But I promise you there are many what I would call satanic voices that we all give an ear to from time to time. Because if the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one, I love, Tozer said it so aggressively in a sermon once I listened to. He said, he goes, why are you, why are you so confident in your professors? He says this in Chicago in like the 50s. And, and he's like, don't you know that it's just fallen minds teaching fallen minds? And I think that this is something that is important for us to understand is that as people who have been born again, our teacher, our instructor is the Holy Spirit. Now, this seems like, you're like, man, this, this guy is sounding like a fundamentalist. Um, well, I am fundamentally a firm believer that Jesus is the sole source of real wisdom and truth. And that the goal of the Christian life is intimate relationship with Him. Intimate relationship with Him. That allows us to actually navigate the difficulties of our current age and the multitude of voices that I believe are under the sway of the wicked one um, who are constantly vying for our affections and our attention. So we need to understand that we will not have the tools to combat the fact that we are being bombarded daily by so many lies, we don't even know how to, and we think, this is the problem with the human mind, the human mind is convinced that it knows truth when it doesn't even have all the information. We will say crazy things about politicians, even the worst politician, I would go as far as to say, I have made very black and white statements about politicians I didn't like, right? But when I actually examine my own statements, I realize that I am making a blanket statement about someone I know very little about. So 
You're like, I hate Trump, or I hate Biden, or I don't like this. I'm like, how much do we actually know about any of these people? I would simply say, you don't have to necessarily like their policies or like their bombast or dislike their bombast, but the question is, is I think we should be far less confident in our own intelligence, because I promise we're all a lot stupider than we think. I mean, really, I just want, let's just pray right now and just take that home. You're stupid. Let's just go home with that. This is what a sick man says. Uh, you're like, no, I actually believe you're too smart to rely upon our natural tendency towards stupidity, because what we need, the Christian life is not built upon intellectual capacity. It's built upon spiritual illumination. But the Spirit can't illuminate something you haven't first put into your mind. The woman's misrepresentation of the heart of God is a great warning to you and I to recognize that we are not going to be able to discern truth from lies if we don't know the God we say we believe in and if we don't spend time with Him in His Word. We should not misrepresent God in His Word, which means we should be probably students of the Word. You know, one of the things the Door of Hope is doing right now is a belief, a fundamental belief, that Sunday morning is, we want Sunday morning to be a place where you worship, where you experience the presence of the living Christ, where you participate. But Sunday evening has been designed, the reason we went back to one service and started Sunday evening is because we also recognize that Christians cannot afford to be biblically illiterate. And that we have a responsibility to not just be worshipers, but we will, be, we will only be as good of worshipers as we are learners. And we will only be as good of learners and worshipers as we are followers. And not followers of man, but followers of Christ. And the whole goal of, of studying the Word of God is to learn how to hear the voice of God and the difference of the voice of God, the still soft voice, from the loud kind of bombastic voices that so many of us give so much attention to. And all I would just simply ask you, if you, I have had Christians say to me, I sat actually with a cab driver the other, the other day who I didn't tell him I was a pastor. And he started talking with me about his love of sci-fi novels. And I, I brought up sci-fi and we had read some common ones. I'm like, it's not a huge genre, but I've read a few pieces. And he was really excited about it. And then he starts talking to me. He has a forum that is that it, we started talking about quantum mechanics because I've been geeking out on quantum mechanics for like two years now. And, uh, and, and he's like, I think it all is connected to God. And I know it's going to sound weird. You probably think I'm weird. And I'm like, I don't think you're weird. And then I was curious. And then he lays out, he tells me that he saw something in this story in Genesis 3 that no one has ever seen before. What did I just tell you? <laughs> if it's new, it's what? Not true. And, uh, and he, he's like, what Satan offered them uh, is something that, uh, that they already had. And I was like, I agree with that. I actually agree with that. But then he went further and I go, well, explain what you mean by that. And he goes, he goes I believe that God created everything. He saw that it was good. But then God, and then this is where it just went like, like just, it just took a left, it went, it was fascinating. He was the kindest man. Uh, he just goes, you know, God created everything. And then he just like, he, he actually, he caused himself to forget 
that he was God after he made humanity in his image that we're all a part of God he forgot so that we could all individually be gods and I was like I'm like wow and I'm like I'm like I don't you know I've read that story I felt like rude to say I'm actually a pastor at that point. So I'm like, you know, I've read that story and I've read that a little differently. Um, my view is that we're made in the image of God and that we're image bearers of God and that sin in the fall was actually offering humanity something that they already possessed, which was, which was union with God as image bearers of God. But I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever read anywhere in the text that God gave himself amnesia. Um, and he goes, it's there. I'm like, all right, I'll go, I'll read it today. Um, I gave him my name and told him I was an author, which I, he's like, I'm buying your book today. So if you're here, sir, sorry to use you as an illustration, but come talk to me afterwards. I'd love to talk more with you about this. Um, so, sowing the seeds of doubt. But it goes on, the second, the punch is in this accusation, the false truth. Genesis 3, 4, and 5, it says, you will not certainly die. Notice, now Satan, before he's questioning, and now he is making a blanket statement and accusing God of lying. Now, the accusation of Satan, um, he will accuse God of all sorts of things, but he also is masterful at accusing us as well. And he's accusing the woman of being too dumb to see the truth. He's accusing God of withholding from the woman. And he knows it's not true because what did Jesus say about Satan? He is a liar and he has been a liar from the beginning. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now there is all kinds of play. I wish I had Tim Mackey here to break down the words, but the difference between the word crafty um, and the word naked. They're very similar Hebrew words. They almost like rhyme. Um, and, and then the, uh, the concept of the eyes being opened and then all of a sudden, what was the line um, after they came together? They were naked and not ashamed. Um, so Satan in many ways is giving them a false truth. He is being true in the sense that if you touch the fruit, you're not going to die. That's true. Because God never said that. But God did say, if you eat of the fruit, you'll die. And then, not only that, um, he promises Eve something that she already possesses. This is the most interesting aspect. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, Satan, why I call it a false truth, all of it being wrapped in an accusation against God, is the false truth is this, is Satan is actually telling her something true. Because what did God say after the fall? What did he say of humanity? Behold, the man has become like us. Satan was not lying. Satan actually was telling her the truth, but without explaining what kind of truth it was that she was about to enter into. Because Adam and Eve already were one with God. They had real intimacy. 
There was real I-thou relationship. They were not God, but they were made in God's image. That is, they were made to be uniquely in relationship with God at the center of his creation as co-laborers with him. They were invited into the heavenly council to participate in ruling over the good creation that God had made. He called it good again and again and again, and it is very good. And now Satan says, listen, when you eat of this, your eyes will be open. And they were open, but they weren't open to good. They were open to something that God did not intend. And what Eve is grabbing a hold of here is the promise of a knowledge that supposedly God is withholding from her. And she does, and he does, Adam, do become gods. That is, in that moment of rebellion, they chose to be their own gods. That is what God meant when he says, behold, man has become like one of us. He's not saying that in a, in a way that is meant to be positive. He is saying, look it, behold, the man, the woman have become what we never intended them to be. Their own gods defining for themselves what is right and wrong. That our satisfaction is not found in us defining for ourselves what is truth. Does this ring a note for any of you right now in our current culture and the climate in which we live in which people feel this incredible freedom to define for themselves what they shall be? And then yet, every time we choose to be our own gods and define for ourselves what we shall be, it always ends up bringing death, destruction, and a continued diminishment of the human experience. And we as Christians, I think our shame lies in our inability to articulate the hope of the gospel in a way that's compelling to those that are playing God. And maybe it's because we in the pews are playing God ourselves. And we're doing it in a more dangerous way because we're playing God, but it's cloaked in, a Christian, in Christian clothing, in Christian language. And let me tell you, no one is more miserable than a Christian playing God because they know the truth and yet they're choosing to continue to live life as if God wasn't there. And it's tormented. You're better off just being a straight up pagan who embraces, just be a nihilist, just embrace the day, do whatever you want because tomorrow you die and then there's the judgment. If you, you're better off living in that way than knowing that Jesus is true, knowing that, that, that God has created parameters for our existence, not because he's cruel, but because he loves us and is after our freedom. When we choose to say, I don't want your freedom. I, want, I would rather be a slave to sin than one who is liberated through surrender. And when we live in that, in that way, we live... It's tormented Christians. And just so you know, I'm not speaking uh, in hyperbolic terms right now. I have met with more people through the 14 and a half years of Door of Hope that are torn between this desire to live with one foot firmly planted in the world and one foot firmly planted in heaven. And they can't figure out why they aren't flexible enough to do the splits between the two. 
Um, and, I th- and I think, like, listen, I'm like, you're not a spiritual Jean-Claude Van Damme. That's not going to happen. Like, and if you don't know what that reference means, shame on you. Um, but the, the bottom line is, is that we're not called to, to be a part of the world in the sense that we look like it and we act like it. We are called to learn how to navigate the world. We're called to be here because this is the place that God is in the business of seeking and saving that which is lost. This is why I think what we should live with is a, is a much more open-handed approach to existence. I'm not saying cut out all your pop culture. I'm like, I, look at me. I'm like an aging hipster. I understand it. I like, I'm wearing a granny sweater. I know, I know my place in the world, okay? Uh, my thing is don't take the world or yourself so stinking seriously. But take Jesus and his grace really, really seriously. People are perishing because they're believing the lies, the same old lies. God is not good. He does not have your best in mind. You need to take this for yourself because you're not going to be happy until you do. And we believe the lies. Your eyes will be open. Yes, your eyes might be open, but they might be open to a new kind of death, a new kind of experience. I remember when I got into hallucinogens in, in high school, the promise was that I would have a new experience. I would have a new vision of the world. I read Aldous, Harding's, uh, Aldous Huxley's um, uh, Doors of Perception. I'm like, I want that. I want to have this, you know, I want to tune in, turn on, drop out. I want, I, wanted, I want to enter into that world. And I did. And I saw the world in a new light. But I am positive I wasn't meant to see that. And I watched my best friend lose his mind and not come back from it. Not come back from it. I just saw him about four years ago. He showed up homeless at our church. I hadn't seen him in 15 years. And the very acid trip that him and I went on to have a new door of perception, literally he's convinced still to this day, and he might be dead now, convinced to this day that he died that night and that he has been in hell ever since. And it was the most heartbreaking. I drove him back to Longview. I actually was scared for my life because he was so crazy. Um, and I was like, I don't know this guy anymore. He was my best friend, but he's a stranger to me now. And he's a meth addict. And he had me drop him off in the woods. I watched him run down a bank into a stream and he disappeared. And I've never seen him again. And I'm like, this is the lies of the world. You will have new vision. You'll have a new way of understanding. You know, and it may seem irrelevant to bring up psychedelics, but that is one of the big themes. You know, Silicon Valley right now is filled with the concept that we're going to unlock our mind's ability to really take the world into the future if we all do this microdosing. I mean, the, the economists have done articles on it. If you guys have read Michael, Michael Pollan's book, I mean, they opened up a stinking mushroom shop that had a line around it for days, and then it, they're like, oh, we didn't know that's illegal still. Only in Portland. Seriously, what is wrong with the city? Um, but I think that this is the thing is we're always chasing after that new experience, that thing that will bring ultimate satisfaction. For me, hallucinogens led to, led to I want love. And so what I, oh, well, there's a fake love for you too. Here, t- take some ecstasy. You'll love everybody. They're like, oh, I didn't know that that actually does all kinds of damage to your body. And I remember meeting with a doctor after I started Door of Hope and had my first anxiety spell. And he goes, did you ever do ecstasy when you were young and I'm like yeah and he goes here watch this video and he's like this is what you did to your brain I'm like dang it I'm like Jesus please bring healing um, the fact is is that I have listened to the lies you're not 
listening to some guy who's just speculating. I spent my entire 20s, I wasted my 20s chasing after the freedom from the tyranny of a moral God in, in, in hopes that my eyes would be open and I would discover real enlightenment on my own as my own God. And all it did was almost blow up my marriage and lead a whole trail of hurt people behind me and a damaged brain. <laughs> I'm sure of it. And that raises tons of questions of why you're willing to listen to me, but we won't go there. <laughs> you will not certainly die. He knows you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The snake's questions imply that God here has been keeping something from them. But this is so interesting. God has not been keeping anything from them. He has been keeping everything for them. He said, the whole world is yours. Subdue it. He even gives them the ability to do what he does, the sacred act of naming a thing. Enter into my creative work, even. Be co-creators with me, if you will. Subdue the world in partnership with me. And yet, somehow, Satan's temptation brings this theme that will play itself out through all of human history is the enemy's continual challenge of God's good heart toward his humanity. And where does it lead? And we'll close here. It leads to sin, displaced desire, and the rebellion against God's rule. Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 7. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes and also desirable for gaining wisdom, notice that. She saw that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Adam's just been a silent, <laughs> a silent figure in this. You know, it's so interesting. I never saw this until recently. Um, I thought it was so fascinating when God shows up and says, it was, Adam says, it wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. And the woman says, it wasn't me, it was the serpent who deceived me. And I'm like, both of them are putting the blame on someone else. And the serpent's the only honest one in the story. That actually isn't true. Scripture declares that Eve was actually deceived. And it's interesting to me that it says, through one man, sin entered the world. All of the blame ultimately falls on the head of Adam. <laughs> All of it. Um, and, and I think that that is a fascinating thing, why we need each other. Because together in our relationships, we can actually, we're not very good at recognizing when we're being deceived. Sometimes we need the voice of reason to say, you're believing a lie right now. You're not believing the truth. Adam failed in his covenantal role and the blame falls on him. And it's not because men can't be deceived and women are deceived. That's not the same. In fact, Paul uses the deception of Eve to, to warn the church against being deceived um, by Satan and listening to lies. Uh, and, and so I think that this is, this is a, a theme of, once again, when we don't live life together, isolation, is, as Luther said, is the devil's playground. And he likes to get us alone where he can whisper lies to us. This is why COVID was such an incredible breeding ground for Satan's lies. Displaced desire and rebellion against God's rule. 
The woman, the woman sees the fruit of the tree was good for food. Notice, this is the moment where up to this point, God has been the one who defines what is good. And he already said, you can't eat of that fruit. So he already said, it is not good for food. You can eat of any tree, but not that one. And there is desire displaced. This is the essence of what Rene Girard calls the mimetic principle. This is the, the essence of, of way all of the issues we have in civilization. I agree with Girard. If you actually took the Ten Commandments and turned them upside down, if you actually took care of covetousness, displaced desire, desiring what is not yours, <laughs> desiring what the other has, in this case, something that she believes God is withholding from her, but we do it with each other. Um, and it doesn't take long. You see it immediately follows up and Cain and Abel will get to it. But that desire for, for something we can't have um, becomes the ultimate driver that leads to lying, to stealing, to adultery, to ultimately murder. It's the, it, it runs generally in that order, and it's why violence takes control of, I mean, think of, there's a war right now over a piece of land, actually in many places in the world, and the, that war is, I desire what they have. You think about Russia and Ukraine, like Russia doesn't have enough stinking land. It's like, a, you know how big Russia is? It like, I've been there. It, it, I think it covers 12 time zones. Like, you just want that one piece of land? Really? The battle between Palestine and Israel, the desire the, and the idea, the, the violence that comes out and the willingness to do damage to another to have what they have. I think we already see that beginning to play out right here. It happens in the opening of the fall. I want the one thing I can't have. <laughs> and there you have the crossing of the line because the woman now is defining what is good. God is no longer defining it. The magic, my friends, or I should say the sorcery is not in the fruit. There's nothing magic about the fruit. <laughs> they didn't eat the fruit and they're like, the bite and it's like, it's like taking acid. Like they're just like, oh my gosh. No, the fall is the fruit is, is the symbol of human beings in that moment defining for themselves what is right and what is wrong. In other words, they took what Satan offered. You will be your own God. And they became their own gods. And the consequences is that their eyes were open. And instead of coming together, what it creates is, is a complete fragmentation of relationship in three directions. It was desirable for gaining wisdom. There it is. But it's the wrong kind of wisdom. And it's a rebellion against God's rule. And she gave it to her husband, and he ate it. No, no pushing back. No pushing back. And it ends with, then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord of God as he was walking in the garden of the cool of the day. They heard the sound of the Lord of God. This is always a, a sound. It's like wind. It's like the... the the power of God, and it is an element. God is moving toward humanity to correct what has gone wrong, but there is a sense of judgment coming. And what, is, what happens? They hid from the Lord 
God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, and I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. Notice, first, their eyes are open now. Instead of to their collective oneness, our, we're different, but we're partners. And there's no shame because we're working together. And they're not thinking about their nakedness. They're thinking about the other. And when the, the, the overwhelming sense of nakedness is the, thing, the kind of knowledge that enters in is the self-consuming knowledge that destroys all of us. It's the absorption. It's a self-awareness that turns the eyes inward upon the heart and causes our worlds to shrink down. It's deeply problematic. And, and I think that this is, the, the, and this is the thing that the 20th century has tried to embrace, and we are still feeling the ramifications of it, um, which is the rise of the psychological self and the belief that your personal experience, your internal self is actually the most important thing in the universe. And yet, with that being set as the ultimate goal of human existence, we live longer, we have more, than any other generation in all of human history, and yet we're the most unhappy, most unhappy people in recorded history. The amount of people on medication for mental, mental health issues, I, I believe that sin is, that the sins of the Father, that we have genetic dispositions, we live in fallen worlds with fallen bodies and fallen minds, but I also believe a lot of our unhealth, our mental unhealth, our, our, our overwhelming, um, the rise of, of kind of mystery illnesses uh, are all um, the play, the outworking of a worldview that says you will be happiest and most content if you are at the center of your universe. I actually believe that that lie is so grand that it actually dismantles what it means to be human um, and actually has led to unbelievable tyranny not only in the mind, but in the body as well. And I think that, that this is something that we, uh, that we should be aware of. Uh, because here you have this eyes are open. Now they're thinking about, they're not thinking about the other. They're thinking about like, whoa, what's, I don't like what I'm seeing right now. And, you know, I really feel for the guy. Um, because there's just nothing pleasant about the male figure. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing that this, the nakedness of just all of a sudden, what was beautiful and pure now is a source of shame. And it shows the disintegration first, the relationship between the two. They weren't, he didn't step up to the plate and protect her when she was listening to the serpent. They could have possibly combated him together, but instead, Adam and his laziness leads now to a division between him and his bride in a way where there's now shame in their relationship. And that was never what God intended. That is new knowledge. That's not the knowledge. See, they, they did get knowledge that they did not have before, but it's a new kind of knowledge that doesn't lead to life. It actually leads to death. And then it doesn't just end there. It ends with a destruction of relationship between them and God. Because now instead of the trees being a source of God's goodness 
and provision for humanity, trees now become an emblem throughout the rest of Scripture as often a source of judgment. Ultimately, in the ultimate transformation of a, of a symbol that often means judgment is Jesus crucified to the tree, which returns it to a door of hope, which is what it was in the garden. But now it's a place where people hide. They hide from God. And it's a, and it's a picture of, of judgment and shame and fear and the fear of their own nakedness. And now it's not naked like I'm physically naked. It's I'm exposed. God sees what I have done and I cannot withstand before the holy God. I can't, I can't stand up. In the courtroom, I have no defense. This is actually the right position for them to be in. They have no defense. And Adam is right to say, I was afraid. <laughs> because I, I, because what could he say? I gave you everything and you, and you did the one thing I asked you not to do. And I want you to know that I don't believe God is out there yelling at Adam and Eve. We often read into the voice of the Lord. Um, we try to read between the lines. I think it's the voice of a heartbroken father whose kids are hiding because they made a decision to put themselves into a tyranny. They did get new knowledge, but it was knowledge that killed, not knowledge that brought life. And you guys, I just want to just ask the question I, Darcy and I were talking about this last night as, as we close. Before I pray, it's just this question of, are you playing God with your life? Is Jesus real to you? I think it's one of the most fundamental questions that we must ask ourselves is, is do I have a knowledge of Jesus that is relational and intimate? And do I believe that his way and his commands that flow out of the great gift, his grace, his one-way love that comes towards. He loves to meet sinners in their sin, but he's a holy God. He doesn't want to leave you there. He, 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 says, he says, be born again. Now rise up and follow me. And, and it's amazing that we can become born again and then, and then just like the children of Israel, we just want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back to slavery. Like, oh, this isn't as fun. I thought being a Christian would be fun. When did, when did Christianity become about being fun. I thought it's supposed to be about freedom. And I always thought that freedom is actually something that's quite fragile and something that should be protected with great care because it's so easy to become a slave. And the only kind of freedom that brings us real freedom is to actually allow Jesus to be our master because he's the only one that has the power to truly set you free. And so I, I just simply ask you the question, like some of you might be experiencing actual sickness, mental unhealth, uh, extreme depression, all these things that, and I just want you to know, I am a man who is plagued with severe anxiety. And I have experienced divine healing, but I've also had to go through all of the, all of the, the hard work of counseling even being on medication. I've, I've had to deal with elders intervening in my own, my own brokenness. So I don't want you guys to think that I'm like, this is the guy, he's got, I have been healed all is well. I have figured out Jesus, do, do as I do. I'm just simply saying this, I know that the path toward healing begins with an honesty about 
are we allowing God to be God or are we choosing to be our own gods? And I don't believe that there's a real freedom from many of the things that we're experiencing until we lay it all down at his feet. And he's not interested in this or that part of you. He doesn't want the problem that you have. He wants you. And you come with problems. (laughs) And that's okay. We all do. And this is why I have been pushing so hard every week on just, you guys, we have to be real about our brokenness because I want you to experience healing. I want you to experience beauty and health. We, Darcy and I went and witnessed the anniversary last night of a couple that we've known forever that actually helped fund Door of Hope in the beginning um, who have been married for 50 years. But their kids shared what has been most beautiful was that 10 years ago, something so traumatic happened to them uh, that could have, dis- would have, most people would have dismantled their marriage instantly and caused a complete demise of the family. But instead, there was repentance and there was, there was forgiveness and there was trust. And it was the most beautiful thing to hear our dear friend say of her husband, you are my very best friend. And I look forward every day to waking up by your side and to hearing your voice and to talking with you and to know that 10 years ago, she had every right to walk away. And yet she chose to surrender to Jesus and offer her husband forgiveness. And her husband had his first legitimate encounter with Jesus. And now the only thing they want, they're almost, it's almost exhausting how much they want to talk about Jesus. Like they're literally like, they have no time. They're in their seventies and they have no time for anything but Jesus. It's like, it's like, I can't show them about a silly YouTube clip, nothing. They just want to talk about Jesus. They want to know how Jesus is working in our lives, how he's working in the church. And, and I'm like, and it's convicting because Darts and I both walked away and we just were on the verge of tears because we realize there's so much more we could have, but we choose to just, we can just choose to live on the parameters. Like, it's like 80% obedience, 20%, you know, I'm still want to be my own God, if I can be honest. And the Lord just said, are you going to walk up to the precipice and jump or not? Because this is where life is. This is where the life is. I want you to have freedom. I want that for myself. I want it for you. And I believe some of you are not experiencing freedom because there is unconfessed sin, because there is, because there is an unwillingness to come out of hiding into the light. And I think all of us, we don't, none of us have to look far for sin, friends. So I'm not like picking on anyone here. I can, I can think of a dozen things I did probably this morning. Um, so I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to pray specifically right now just for specific healing over people and, and over and, and over this community because I believe God has called us as a church to move into the prophetic, to move into the, the belief that there is real power in the Holy Spirit who wants to bring real healing and real transformation so that we can stand against the lies of the evil one. Let me pray.